the Lord, the God of everything, will change things at the beginning of the end. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Rod Hember. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We're going through the Bible at the 32nd time. This is interesting this year. And today we study Isaiah again. Isaiah 22 is a very interesting passage. We're going to study that. So stay tuned for that. Corey? Today, I am focusing in on Isaiah chapter 23 and his prophecy against Tyre and Sidon. Ryan? In 1870, a French archaeologist discovered an ancient tomb in the Kidron Valley, and that tomb would prove significant for biblical archaeology. I'll talk more on that after the teaching. I'm looking forward to those pieces coming up in 20 minutes. That's great. Uh, what'd you do, Jen? I think I'll stick around, too. Okay. Yeah, my segment today is called Ambassadors. All right, very good. So get your Bible guide out and your Bible, and let's begin to listen to what God is saying to us. Isaiah 22, verses 12 through 23. And in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, Surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go, proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulchre here, as he who hews himself a sepulchre on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Isaiah chapter 22, verses 12 through 23. Isaiah chapter 22, chapter 23, and chapter 24. That's what we read today as we go through the Bible. 
Every year from Genesis to Revelation, very excited to invite you to join us. If you haven't, why not? You should do that. You know, the Lord continues to speak through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is often called a royal prophet because he was related to the kings of Judah. And this prestige likely gave him a wide audience and perhaps lent an edge of sharpness to his prophecies. Though Isaiah lived about 750 years before Christ, he often spoke of the events surrounding the day of the Lord. It is an interesting study to look at the names that appear in Isaiah and their meanings. For example, in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 20, the word of God says that Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, will take authority because God will give it to him and his unique day, the day of the Lord. Isn't that fascinating? Well, did you know that Eliakim means God sets up? It seems a reminder to us that it is God who sets up the true transference of authority. Transference of authority. Now, that's something to think about. What does that mean? God is in the midst of doing his work. So even though the world's going crazy and things are going on around us, still God is in the seat of authority. God is letting things happen his way so that when things turn around, and by the way, if you're a Christian, somebody who's given your life to the Lord, you don't have to worry. He said, don't be troubled. Understand, trust in me. Understand. That's what the dollar says, the American dollar, trust in God. Very important. All right. Now, we're going to be talking about change. We're looking at Isaiah 22. Let's pray. Father, I pray today in the name of Jesus Christ, you would help us. Help us to be able to do the things you've called us to do and hear what you've spoken to us today in the name of Jesus Christ. And we said together, amen and amen. Now, it gets interesting because as we put this up, we're going to watch and see how God speaks to us in the 22nd chapter, verse 12. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning. What? He did. For baldness and for girding with sackcloth. Really? Sadness. Yes, he did. But instead, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, they say. Verse 14 says, then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts. Surely for this iniquity, there will be no atonement. No atonement for you. Even to your death, says the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? The first point, their sin will not be covered because of their willful ignorance. Now, this is one of those times those who follow the Lord know that their sin is covered by Jesus Christ. This is one of those times when we understand God is speaking and we need to hear him. There is a rebellious, a rebellion to God. And although he changes the circumstances around us, those who say, no, we're going to eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Not good. Not a good situation. When we come to the place where we know we need God. And we come to the Lord and we say, Jesus Christ, come into my life. I believe you are fully God and fully man, that you allowed yourself to die on the cross and then 
miraculously be raised in the flesh from the dead. And I need you in my life. Help me to be alive. And he wakes up our spirit and gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the time we become born again. And that's what we need to do in difficult times. Isaiah twenty-two fifteen says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go proceed to this steward, Sheba or Shebna, who is over the house and say, What have you here? And who have you here that you have hewn a sepulcher here as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in the rock? Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. And there you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be and be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position, he will pull you down. Which brings me to this point. The Lord will change things at the beginning of the end. <laughs> at the beginning of the end. Christians do not serve an office or a responsibility. This is very important. I want to read this carefully. Listen carefully. Christians do not serve an office or a responsibility. They serve only the Lord. Now, that does not mean that we rebel against everything. Everything's a rebellion. That's not what we're talking about. We serve the Lord. And as we serve the Lord, God tells us to be orderly, peaceful, and conduct ourselves properly. And so we understand that. So we serve as we are, as, as we are under the government. We serve that way. The government tells us to serve by rejecting God, that we can't do that. We, we can't do that. Daniel has a whole, we'll get to Daniel. He has a whole level of things happening there. But we need to understand that we just don't need to rebel at everything. Very important. Isaiah 22, verse 20 says this. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, God assigns, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. And I will commit your responsibility into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulders. So he shall open and no, no one shall shut it. And he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in the secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Wow, this is interesting. God will move and will change things at the end of time. We're seeing that already. Christians know that the Lord will move and reconcile everything to himself. Now, we are in a difficult time. There's a lot of things going on that seem very challenging, but let's understand that it's not all about our freedom and our choice. And we live in a world with 8 billion people on the planet. And so we need to understand that things have changed for us and we need to live as God has called us to live and we need to serve others. And we need to understand that And we're not serving the government. We're not serving this one world business. We have to live according to the Lord, our God, who told us to make peace and share the good news because there's coming a time very soon when the peace will be gone 
And there's coming a time when the Lord will take us away. And when all of the sudden, God will say, okay, you're on your own, humans. And he'll do that for seven years. And I believe, it's what I believe, that at the end of that time, Revelation 19, he'll come back and he will make the ultimate judgment on the nations and they will bear consequence to their decisions. That becomes very important, beloved. And that's what I feel that we need to communicate today and we need to tell our testimony to as many as possible. Hi, Rod Hember here. We go through the Bible every year from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now you can join us and watch at the time you like by searching Bible Discovery TV on the Roku box or on Amazon Fire TV. Anytime you want to watch us, we're there. Get a hold of it. Watch us anytime you want to. Well, it's time now to carry on with our Bible study, and I'm really looking forward to this one today because today I'm documenting a chain of discoveries which turned out to be a pretty significant find and helped to verify the biblical record. But it also brought with it a bit of a conundrum, which I'll deal with near the end of the segment. But to get us started, we need to go back to 1870 when a French archaeologist first made the initial discovery. So let's go. In 1870, French archaeologist Charles Clermont Ganneau, while surveying ancient tombs in the Kidron Valley, noticed a partially destroyed tomb high up in the cliff. As with other tombs in the area, this one had been assimilated and repurposed into a residence, though it did still retain part of a Hebrew inscription above the door. But because Ganneau was unable to decipher it, he cut out the rock and sent it to the British Museum in London, where it would remain untranslated for over 80 years. Finally, in 1953, Jewish epigraphist Naman Avigad was able to decipher the text. Though part of the inscription was missing, what could be recovered was very significant. It reads, This is the sepulchre of Yahu, who is over the house. There is no silver and gold here, but his bones and the bones of his slave wife with him. Cursed be the man who will open this. As Dr. Randall Price points out in his Handbook of Biblical Archaeology, the description over the house indicated a steward, but because part of the crucial name was missing and the part that was in the inscription was a common ending for many names, namely Yahoo, no definite identification could be made. Nevertheless, Abigad was convinced that the name on the inscription originally read Shebna Yahoo and was none other than Shebna, the royal steward over King Hezekiah's palace, whom Isaiah makes mention of. At least two lines of evidence led him to this conclusion. First, the timing is right. By comparing the letters and writing styles of the tomb inscription with the writing in Hezekiah's tunnel, he discovered that they were both etched during the reign of Hezekiah. Second, Shebna's name fits perfectly into the missing area of the inscription, better than any alternative names ending in Yahoo that he tried. But is there any evidence that Shebna's full name was Shebna Yahoo? In fact, there is. Two clay seals firmly dated to Hezekiah's reign have been discovered. Both were clearly inscribed with the same signet and read, belonging to Shebna Yahu, servant of the king. It seems highly likely then that this tomb belonged to the very same Shebna mentioned in Isaiah. 
While this important discovery certainly helps to verify the accuracy of the biblical record, it also brings with it a bit of a conundrum. That's because, according to Isaiah's record, God punished Shebna because he built this excessively extravagant tomb for himself apart from his family tomb. Apparently, such a building implied a status greater than deserved, and therefore was an overt demonstration of prideful arrogance in the sight of God and the nation of Judah. For this, God demoted him from royal steward to scribe and declared that he would never get to use the tomb because he would die in a far-off land. But how then could this prophecy be fulfilled if his tomb bearing his inscription has been found? One possibility is that Shebna repented and God relented. But more than likely, Shebna was indeed exiled to a foreign land, never to return, meaning he never occupied his grand tomb. It could have just as easily become someone else's sepulcher or even remained empty. You know, when I first heard about this discovery, I was ecstatic because it confirms many details recorded in the Bible. First, it proves Shebna existed. It also proves that he lived and served during Hezekiah's reign and that he was the king's steward. The tomb itself also stands witness to the fact that Shebna had indeed built a lofty tomb for himself. But with that, I'll also admit that I had questions about this discovery of the sepulchre because of God's promise to Shebna that he would never be buried there. So does this somehow contradict what the Bible tells us? Not at all. As I mentioned at the end of the segment, there are a few possibilities. It could be that Shebna repented and God in response allowed him to be buried there after all. But I think it's more likely that Shebna was indeed exiled to a foreign land and never returned meaning he never occupied the tomb. It's also possible that someone else used the tomb instead. The other thing to keep in mind is that we don't know if the tomb contained any bodies, because by the time Gano discovered it, it had already been converted into a home. And even if it did contain a body, there would probably be no way to positively identify who it was. So these discoveries in no way contradict what the Bible tells us. They only confirm it. Very interesting. Excellent piece, Ryan. That's great. Corey? All right. Well, today I'm going to be taking a look at the ancient city of Tyre, which was closely associated with Sidon. Now, we're looking at it because in Isaiah chapter 23, this entire chapter is a prophecy against Tyre and how it will fall, uh, which would have been a tremendously big deal. I mean, Tyre and Sidon were uh, the main port cities on the Mediterranean coast uh, for generations, for for so long they had a monopoly and, 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 and ha had that very important place. And we see this reflected in the Bible. I mean, uh, in King David and King Solomon had a great working relationship with Hiram, King of Tyre, and it was uh, through importing the goods from Tyre that Jerusalem itself was built in the Jerusalem temple, even using uh, craftsmen from Tyre. Then when we get here to Isaiah, Isaiah has some really interesting things to say about the city. So let's take a look at its history. On a modern map, the city of Tyre has changed dramatically from that of its ancient counterpart. Ancient Tyre existed in two parts, a mainland city and an island city. Accordingly, it was a center for maritime trade. In fact, the name for the coastal territory that encompasses Tyre was given to it by the Greeks. Phoenicia, meaning purple. A specialized purple dye was extracted from murex shells fished from the Mediterranean and then shipped out of Tyre. It was a rich, important city. 
The relationship between Israel and Tyre seems to have begun with the friendship between Tyre's King Hiram and King David. Hiram shipped lumber to Joppa first for David's palace and later for the Jerusalem temple. As with all alliances, they can fail, though, and by the end of the monarchy period, the prophet Ezekiel records a few prophecies of destruction against Tyre. Ezekiel 26 begins with a general prophecy that says, God will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea she will become a place to spread fishnets, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. This prophecy uses the image of waves of destruction brought by multiple enemy nations. Looking at Tyre's history, it's clear that this did happen. First wave was Nebuchadnezzar, the ruling king of Babylon in Ezekiel's time and mentioned by name in the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar besieged mainland Tyre for 13 years, eventually conquering it and taking its king captive. The details of Tyre's defeat here or surrender aren't known, but the island city remained proudly undefeated. The next wave of Tyre's destruction came at the hands of Alexander the Great. Snubbed by the island city, Alexander commanded his army to scrape and throw all of the rubble and rocks of mainland Tyre into the sea, building a thin, long causeway out to the city. There, he breached its wall and took the prize. Alexander evidently used all of the rocks and timber of old Tyre to build his war bridge because none of it has been found in place. In fact, the buildup of silt over the centuries has created an artificial landmass connecting the old island city to the mainland. Despite this thorough thrashing unleashed by Alexander, the city was rebuilt, eventually becoming a prominent Roman city and incorporating its new peninsula. Tyre's final death blow came in A.D. 1291. After several takeovers, it was finally captured by the Mameluke Muslims and burned to the ground, never to be rebuilt again. So there we go. Again, Isaiah chapter 23 is not the only place by any means that the Bible talks about Tyre or even prophesies against Tyre, prophesies the downfall of Tyre, but more to come on that. I mean, those pieces were excellent, brilliant pieces. Uh, you can get a hold of them on the website as well. So very good. Janice? Yes. Well, I called this ambassadors. I was looking at Isaiah chapter 22, and this is a proclamation against Jerusalem. And God is really speaking to his people here. And we see in verse 12, it says, And in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth. But here's what they chose to do instead. We read it in verse 13. But instead, joy and gladness, um, slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's a very carefree attitude, isn't it? And, and I have a, a note here to myself that it says there are times when this is, uh, this is a proper response to, to difficulty. Um, we can read about that in Ecclesiastes 2.24, 3.13. But to use food and drink and physical pleasures as a way of turning away from or putting ahead of um, righteousness before God is disastrous. 
Um, you've often heard preachers mention, I know, Rod, that you have said it before, that, you know, as believers, we're not living on a cruise ship here. It's not all about being happy and, and um, you know, being on vacation all the time. Not that God doesn't want us to have life and life more abundantly, of course. Uh, the joy of the Lord is our strength, and, and we do. We have peace that the world doesn't have, that God gives to us. We have blessings in abundance from God. His blessings um, are rich and add no sorrow to them. These, so I'm not saying that we shouldn't be happy, but if, if we are putting these things, eat, drink, be merry, you know, for tomorrow we die, that's not the way God calls us to live. We are to be ambassadors of Christ. We are to follow what's in his word. We're to know his word in our heart, but put it in, into action. You know, Luke 17, 26 through 29, Jesus said, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be. Also, in the days of the Son of Man, they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Now is the time to live for the Lord. Now is the time to follow him. Know his word, apply it in your life, be different, be a leader, be an encourager, be the hands and the feet of God. Love your neighbor, love God, seek him with all your heart, soul and mind and strength, and then love others as yourself. That's what we need to be doing today. Today, we need to close in prayer and we need to say it this way. We need to say, Lord, help me to learn that you never change. <laughs> I do and I drift and fall, but you never change. As long as I hold on to you, you have gotten a hold of me. So very, very important. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, remember, you can join us at 3.30 to 4.30, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Facebook, YouTube, or Bible Discovery TV for a live prayer meeting. I'll see you there.